Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Hello again. It's been so long. I have been flat in bed sick for a month. Yeah, just about a month. Chest cold at the end of the winter, beginning of the spring. So annoying. And so even when I had energy, I had no voice. And so (laughs) we recorded a couple of questions and I fell sick. So we completely fell off the train because there was no way to get it done. But we're back. And we do have a few questions from you guys, but today is a special episode because we have a topic that we were discussing between ourselves and we realized we should be doing it on pod. I am your host, J. Daniel Sawyer. And I'm your other host, Kitty Nikian. And today's issue is predictability in storytelling. So I ran into one of the most horrible, obscene, stupid criticisms you can give to a story again recently. And I have been fuming about this for days. And when I fume about things for days and it's 80 and 90 degrees outside, I get overheated and things start catching on fire spontaneously. So uh, (laughs) That explains where your hair went. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) So I started ranting. Okay, there's this thing... This thing that people do. You see it a lot on people are giving movie reviews and what sort and that sort of thing. It's this totally vacuous criticism of a story as predictable. And the reason that it bothers me is this infects writers, this terror of predictability. It's not just in, doesn't just infect journeyman writers and novel writers. It has now infected the entire writing class in Hollywood, which is one of the reasons storytelling has gone to shit. Why stories make no sense. That's right. The criticism comes originally from grasping around to explain a disappointing experience with a story. When you read a story and it feels competent, or you see a movie and it feels competent, but it doesn't surprise you, it doesn't thrill you, it doesn't delight you, and you begin to cast around for a reason. And one of the reasons that people alight on is it was predictable. I could see where it was going from the outset. None of the things that happened inspired me. Oh, they were well done. They affected me. I cried at the end. But it was too predictable. This criticism is bullshit. The reason it's bullshit is that stories are predictable and have to be predictable in order to work. When someone is expressing themselves that way, what they're expressing is dissatisfaction that they can't articulate. The problem is that writers then get it into their heads that... Anything predictable is a cliché, and to be avoided like the plague. And so they start eschewing things like story structure, and foreshadowing, and character consistency, in order to... And genre conventions. And genre conventions, and tropes, in order to bust out of the crushing walls of the predictable and of reader expectations. And that is a really good way to make sure that no matter how surprising... And how thrilling a reader finds your book, they will not come back for book number two. Because they can't trust you. 
You will all have had the experience of reading a book or going to a film and having a fantastic time during the experience. And then walking away in a few hours, a few days, maybe a few weeks afterwards, realizing that you have no appetite for any more. Sometimes it's just you don't want any more from that author or that director. Sometimes it's you don't want to reread or revisit that story. Sometimes it spoils you for a whole genre. The reason this happens is this happens one of, for one of two reasons. One is that a story is so entirely by the numbers that although it fulfills reader expectations, it doesn't do so in a way that is unique enough to have its own texture. This being the stories that get the... They get the legitimate, semi-legitimate criticism for being predictable. Yes. The other reason that a story will do this to you is because it simply doesn't have any internal coherence. Your characters will act out of left field from what you've established, or they will act in contravention of their own stated values and preferences. They'll go all over the place. Plot threads will come in at odd angles that won't have been set up, and it'll give you this incredibly twisty, thrilly ride. And then you'll get to the end and you'll be like, I'm motion sick, I want to get off, and I don't want to go back on again. That's what I want to warn against in this uh, this episode. Um, Lost had a big problem with this. Actually, really, anything J.J. Abrams touches has a big problem with this, and anything that any of his... Uh, crew, the bad robot crew, which he's he's responsible for that uh, magic box or mm-hmm. mystery box. Mystery box. I I blame him, and I blame also the existence of the TV TV tropes website. Mm-hmm. I love I love the TV tropes website. Mm-hmm. I could spend hours, um, days, maybe even weeks on TV tropes, but it also has since the existence of TV tropes made new writers afraid of tropes Mm -hmm. and worried about whether they're just fulfilling tropes, whether they're they're not being original enough, which I suppose that's always been a problem (laughs) with with writers, but this has given new language to the thought of, Mm -hmm. am I being original enough? Yeah, and originality is bullshit. Or at least originality comes from an, from an unexpected direction. Originally, originality comes from how you combine the cultural traditions that you're drawing on, however ancient or new, and how you filter them through yourself. That is what creates originality. It's the synthesis. It's not... I have done something completely new and has never been done before. <laughs> That's right. There is almost no way to do something completely new and novel that uh, has never been done before. And... You can, even looking back into, say, some of the most innovative writing in the last couple of hundred years, in the golden age of science fiction, where there were all these crazy ideas that people were doing short stories and novels around. All the stuff that we've come to take for granted, grandfather paradoxes, and wild evolutionary stuff, the alien from the Alien series, all of that stuff seemed startlingly original. But if you look back at the golden age science fiction writers, what do, what's one thing all of them have in common? They're all occultists. Every last one. And all of those ideas are drawn from Hermeticism and ancient Hinduism and whatnot, and they're filtered through a technological um, technological language space. The grandfather paradox time travel, say, uh, the best, the greatest, par- most tightly written paradox story ever written. All Robert, You Zombies. Robert Heinlein's All You Zombies, where the main character, and I'm going to spoil it for you, but I 
promise it will not affect the experience of reading it at all, or of watching the film adaptation Predestination with Ethan Hawke, which is amazing. This is a story in which the main character, the um, person whose life story the main character is listening to, that person's daughter, that person's lover, that person's mother and father, and that person's killer are all the same person looped through a grandfather paradox. The Mm. movie Looper has nothing on this story. (laughs) But all of that is stuff that you can find in the cyclical myths of Egypt and of India. Wonderful execution. And melded with a meditation on the Christian theological concept of predestination and the tension between predestination and free will. You take those ide- those ancient mythic ideas and those ancient philosophical ideas and you meld them together and you put them in the language of technological time travel, you get this amazing story that is amazing not just because of the twists and turns and surprises along the way, of which there are several even though I've just spoiled it for you. There's still many twists and turns that are surprises along the way. It also opens up deep idea spaces for the reader that gives the reader the opportunity to contemplate deep questions about life and meaning that have been asked for as long as there's been written language. It gives them a a new language to ask the old questions, and that's why it sticks with you. Every story has a structure. It has to have a structure. If it doesn't have a structure, it's not a story. There's four or five basic story structures, Shakespeare did them all better than you ever will, (laughs) or than I ever will, or than any of us ever will. And it doesn't matter. Just like all of Shakespeare's sonnets, every single one of them has exactly the same meter, rhyme scheme, and um, paragraph length. It's a very specific form. It's uh, 14 lines of iambic pentameter with a soft foot on the final line. Uh, Soft foot rhyming couplet on the final line after an A-B-A-B-A-B rhyme scheme. And yet, Shakespeare wrote, what, 200 sonnets? 142 sonnets? Something like that? A ridiculous amount. And he wasn't the only one. Sonnets were a fad of the time. They're kind of like rock and roll was in the 20th (laughs) century. The basic rock and roll song has three chords, is three and a half minutes long, has has three verses, three choruses, and a bridge. That's the basic rock and roll form. Now, it's been expanded and riffed and improved upon, in you know, depending on what your tastes are, but that's how rock and roll was born. That form goes back to the 1920s, and it was rigidly adhered to all the way up through the early mid-70s when prog rock came in. And what prog rock did is it imported operatics and musical theater into the rock and roll genre. Um, Some of the early Beatles stuff, a lot of Queen stuff. But no one will accuse rock and roll of being unoriginal. Right. Even though all rock and roll is, is a honky blend of black gospel music, blues, and jazz. And jazz itself is a mishmash coming out of the black gospel tradition of syncopated music like ragtime and uh, New Orleans jazz. And mm-hmm. Anyway, I could go down into the weeds for a long time. He could talk for hours on jazz. The same thing happens in orchestral music. Almost all of the great classical and Baroque-era composers didn't title their symphonies. Their symphonies were Symphony Number no. 9, Symphony Number no. 5. And what is a symphony? A symphony is not a big, sprawling piece of music. It is basically a five-act or seven-act play in musical form. It has leitmotifs, 
that develop through the whole thing um, from the opening bars to the closing bars and they're usually mirrored on both sides and the movements bring you through to a crescendo in the final movement and then let you down and they've all got the same structure they've all got similar pacing and they all feel very very different and inspire very different images in your head and emotions just like all romance novels have exactly the same structure. Of the thousands of romance novels that have written, tens or hundreds of thousands of romance novels that have been written since the innovation of the genre in the late 19th century, they all have the same structure. They all have the same plot, basically. They all have the same concerns. With a few minor variations between subgenres and types of romance novels. And but within those subtypes there's remarkable consistency and yet every one of them is a little different and a lot of them are amazingly good some of them are so good that people that hate romance can't put them down like uh, Wuthering Heights is a really good example Um, even though it totally ruins the uh, final expectation of the happily ever after but romance novels are basically all inflected from Phantom of the Opera um it's a, actually a fusion of Phantom of the Opera and James and Jane Austen novels kind of blended together. Huh. It's the, the Gothic tradition and the English pastoral tradition. Um, with a healthy dose of Romeo and Juliet. Because the, the romance actually goes back thousands and thousands of years, but its its forms differ. The, the form we're used to coalesced in the late 19th and early 20th century. They're all predictable. The delight and the surprise comes not... In the massive structural innovation, in taking things and making them ultra-twisty and taking a left turn any time you get a chance. The satisfaction, the delight, the surprise comes in how the form is inflected, how it's used every time. What's being done to it to make it fresh, to generate surprise. And that can be anything from the way the language is used, to bringing werewolves and vampires into it. Um, And, of course, enough people have done that now that that's a cliché, and so people find new ways to do it. Like my friend Gail Carriger, who's been on the cast many times, did in her novel Solace, where she said, okay, well, romance has been done, and werewolves and vampires have been done, but steampunk werewolves and vampires and romance haven't been done as a cross between a Jane Austen novel and a thriller. (laughs) So I'll do that. And she did it, and it worked so well it launched her career, and she's a very successful author. This is where the myth, uh, the pith and marrow of creativity lies. It lies not in trying not to be predictable. In fact, the weird thing is that in most cases, the more unpredictable you try to be, the more boring your story will get. Um, and the reason that it gets boring is that When the reader doesn't know what to expect, when the reader doesn't know what they can trust, then they don't invest. And if you don't give the reader on page end what you promised them on page one, they'll feel betrayed. You have to give them what you've promised. You you don't want people throwing your book across the room (laughs) or burning it or stomping on it or... um, Mm -hmm. flushing it down the toilet or something like that. Yeah. So 
you have to you have to do what you promise in the book. When someone picks up a book, they're expecting a story. A story a story means something. A story is the progression of a point of view character through conflict and obstacles to achieve a goal always if it's a successful story at a great price. That price may be their innocence. It may be the loss of family and friends. It may be the sacrifice of their own life. It may be the sacrifice of their dreams. It may be a change in worldview. It may be a process of growing up. But whatever it is, it requires sacrifice and suffering on the part of the main character. You can't take the reason that Mary Sue's suck is that. You can't take an overpowered character who's never challenged, put them through a series of fun adventures, and then have them win at the end and have it matter to anybody. Humans do not value gifts unless the gifts are symbols of something deeper. That's why when when your lover gives you a gift, it means something, because it's a token of affection. But if... You win the lottery, it doesn't really mean anything. And you can see this in the stories of what happens to most lottery winners. They don't treat the money as real, but they do manage to ruin their lives with it. Humans only value things they have to suffer for. Um, Or, well, that's not true. Humans value things they have to suffer for and things that are symbolic of something else that they already value. That's it. You... Um, when you put Ray Skywalker up against Force Adepts like Luke Skywalker and uh, uh, whatever his name is, uh, Ben Solo, and whatnot, and she can wield a lightsaber better than any of them and can do everything better than anyone can because she's so special. Without even a training montage. Without even a training montage. Her victory at the end doesn't matter. It's even if the journey is fun, the victory doesn't matter. And you can see this in the grosses for the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Everyone was really excited to have more Star Wars. The Force Awakens did really well. The Last Jedi did eh, okay. And then The Rise of Skywalker didn't make its money back. Because as cool as Star Wars is, people walked out of The Force Awakens and they just didn't want any more. And um, on, on a side note to that, from what I've heard from a lot of my friends who were still really excited about the second two movies, mm-hmm. they weren't in it for the main storyline with the main characters. They were interested in the stormtrooper and bounty hunter that were accompanying her. Mm-hmm. That's the storyline they cared about, and they weren't there for... For Ray's story. For Ray's story. They were there for um, Poe. Mm-hmm. And, oh, God, I can't remember the Stormtrooper's name. Yeah, it's that's how forgettable the show was. I saw two of them um, and just wouldn't wouldn't even bother with the third because the second was so bad. I was hoping they would pull it out in the second one, and they didn't. You can lay a lot of this at the feet of J.J. Abrams and his crew because they're the ones that were in charge of that, and they're in charge of all of the major franchises right now. Um, Akiva Goldsman and, um, oh, Alex Kurtzman, that whole crowd. 
But on a deeper level, you lay it at the feet of a generation of writers who grew up very privileged, never having to suffer, and not um, grounded in historical tradition. Uh, and by historical tradition, I don't just mean history, I mean literature. You have to read old books. <laughs> and by old books, I mean books by people who are dead, right? Even if they were written in the 90s or the 2000s, books by people who have died, because they're <laughs> from a different world than you are. Old books, books from other cultures, because they bring something to the table that you're unused to, and that forces you to stretch. I'll, I want to say that I, I think the impulse to center creative or center originality is and always has been common with new creative people. Oh, absolutely. New My writers. first few stories were terrible because I was trying so hard to be original to break all the storytelling conventions. But when you have a rich background in story and when you realize how little in the universe actually is original, you start focusing on bringing you and your uniqueness to things. And then you... And then of course, that does, re that does require that you become a unique and developed person, but that's yeah. a whole sub separate subject. But the indie film boom of the 90s was a really fantastic time because there was a lot of really unusual storytelling. Structure, mm. what looks like, at first blush, completely original story structures, like you saw with Quentin Tarantino's films, like you mm. see with Lars von Trier's films, and some of the others that are going to be so obscure that no one, no one's going to... Or like you know, Christoph Kislovsky and uh, a lot of the French uh, second new wave movement. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you look at those stories deeply is you discover that there actually is a structure that's hidden down below the layer that's very tr the first layer that's very traditional pulp fiction may be told out of order in terms of plot but it's told in order in terms of Jules development towards his salvation and that's what the story is actually about it's the contrast of the two hitmen of Jules who um, takes the miracle and decides to go off and try to become a good person instead of a hitman. And and Vince's eschewing of the miracle and, and scoffing at Jules' revelation, which has an extra layer of dramatic irony happening as it does at the end of the film because we've seen Vince get killed for making that choice already earlier in the movie. And the decision to tell Vince's story out of order and to tell Jules' story in order is what makes the dramatic irony at the end of the film work. And it's also what tells you that the story is Jules's story. And if you watch that first scene in Pulp Fiction, that arc is already at play as they're driving on the street to that first hit. You can see where it's going to go. Same with the uh, another th great thing that came out of indie films in the 90s was the twist ending, which got totally overdone once Shyamalan got his hands on it. But you look at the usual suspects, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you know from the first scene who Kaiser Soze has to be. You know, you can't avoid it. There is only one choice. You can hear, and I'm going to spoil it again, you can hear Kevin Spacey's voice talking to Gabriel Byrne in that first scene before he shoots him. And yet by the end of the film, the film has jerked you around so well that you're half convinced 
that Gabriel Byrne is Kaiser Soze. And that final reveal hits you so hard, not because it's a surprise, but because it shouldn't be a surprise. It's that feeling of, it's the, the Greek term is apocalyptos, of grand revelation. It's as if you're peering through a veil. You're peering through the veil of lies and finally seeing to the truth. And that is why that film is so powerful. And this, I think, is one of the things that um, this grand revelation, I think that is the thing that people who are trying to avoid predictability... That's what they're trying to achieve. That's what they're trying to achieve, but they don't understand that the revelation comes from the perfect delivery of an expected conclusion. Yes. Rather than something completely unexpected. Yes. And this, by the way, is why most of Shyamalan's movies don't work, because he cheats. There's one film of his I saw where he didn't cheat. Ironically, it's the one everyone hates, is The Village. But structurally speaking, that's the one that works. The Sixth Sense worked because it lied to you, and it doesn't hold up on reviewing. Uh, the Village works because it plays straight. All of his other films that I've seen, and I haven't seen all of them, I've seen about three quarters of them, all of the rest of them cheat because he's going so hard for that revelation that he's afraid the audience will get there before him. He doesn't trust his own craft enough to let the audience trust him to take them on the ride. It's one of the reasons that his grosses also have gone steadily down. And I've seen this a lot in television that tries to tell an arcing story without a plan. They set something up, and instead of running with what they've set up and finding, you know, maybe a couple more unique twists and turns and surprises along the way, but delivering what they set up, they're like, oh my god, we set this up? Everybody's going to expect it. People are writing fan fiction about Mm -hmm. this ending. We have to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that ruined Battlestar Galactica. And this is why showrunners should not read fan fiction. Well, among other things. But that's one of the things that ruined Battlestar Galactica, is they, uh, halfway through season three, they got timid about their initial premise and went off in a direction the story couldn't support. When they tried to tie it together at the end, it simply didn't work. It simply didn't work at all. The ending that they did could have been made to work had they not gone off and left and, and, and made that left turn in season three. It would still have had other problems, but it structurally could have worked, or something like it. But there's, it, it, was, it was horrible. It was badly done. And they, they relied on... This is a, the other thing. Peop, the, uh, the impulse to not be predictable forces you to rely on cheap magician's tricks of narrative. You keep the cliffhangers coming so fast and furious that you don't give the audience a chance to notice that everything is starting to not make sense. But once you hit the end, you don't have them under your spell anymore, and they can see. So you have to weave the spell properly. You can't just be up there playing the huckster's game of saying, oh, look over here while the snake oil is shuffled off stage and something else is brought on. Did I say I was selling snake oil? No, I'm actually selling tonic. That doesn't work. If you want your writing to be surprising, delightful, revelatory, epiphanaic, and rereadable, you have to deliver the promises you set up at the beginning, and you have to engender so much reader trust 
that they will follow you on a journey that allows you to trick them along the way to take their attention off of where you're going so that when you drop the final reveals or the dramatic conclusion or the final joke it's satisfying um let's talk about a writer who appears to break all these rules because he was another great influence um that is often misunderstood douglas adams Okay. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was written on the fly, winds itself all over the place, and seems, on first blush, to have no uniting logic. <laughs> right. How, it, however... It, it feels a, a bit like a Monty Python-esque series of sketch comedies, rather than a story. And since Douglas Adams cut his teeth writing for Monty Python, that shouldn't be surprising. But what happens if you reread or re-listen to The Hitchhiker's Guide a few thousand times, <laughs> not that I know anything about that, is that you discover that everything in the entire story is implicit in that first episode. What's the first episode? It's the first couple chapters of the book. It's, I, I'm familiar with the radio drama more, because that was the original form. Arthur's house is getting knocked down by an unfeeling bureaucracy. And, he, and then his planet gets knocked down by an unfeeling bureaucracy, and he is set adrift and forced to try to find a new home, which he never really does until the end of the sixth book, when then he dies. Or until the beginning of the sixth book, and then he sort of... Uh, everybody dies at the end of the sixth book. But it's all... In that first episode, what do you get? You get the setup. The universe is capricious and cruel and doesn't give a fuck. And the fact that it's capricious and cruel and doesn't give a fuck opens up some amazing deep questions of how you have meaning in life. Every single joke, every single... Um, story vignette, every single side trip and side quest in the whole story is another thematic riff on trying to understand meaning and the experience of meaning and the concept of meaning in a universe that is so baffling and confusing and uncontrollable that it feels as if life must be meaningless. And that theme is so strong that without really intending to, and I know that he didn't really intend to because I've read his notes on the writing process, without really intending to, Douglas kept coming back in every book, in every episode of the original series, to restaging that original confrontation. Whether it's the uh, Guild of Psychiatrists who don't want people to know the answer to life, the universe, and everything, so they commissioned the destruction of the Earth. And then they're trying to kill Arthur because they don't want him to know, him to f figure it out and then tell everybody. Because if everyone knew what the universe meant, then everyone would suddenly be um, emotionally well-adjusted and have no need for psychiatrists anymore. To finding out that the Magratheans built the Earth in order to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything, to going to the end of the universe and having dinner there and having arguments about tax policy and whether animals want to be eaten, <laughs> thus putting Arthur in the role of the Vogons, mm -hmm. or the Hitchhiker's Guide getting taken over by the Vogons, every single step, the, the, the Hoglerunians, the total perspective vortex, everything, every single step is about that confrontation with the deep Lovecraftian horror of the universe. In ancient religious terms, that's the confrontation with God. Awe of the naked self against the infinite. 
And that's why, as bleak as the series can be, it's always funny and it's always uplifting. Because it's swapping awe and horror, awe and horror, awe and horror, with every subsequent chapter. And so he delivers all the way up to the end of book six. He delivers on the promise that he made at the very first chapter. If someone, a beta reader or a reader after it escapes into the wild, criticizes your work as being predictable, what they're actually saying is, I didn't get invested enough to be swept up in the story. Or they're saying, I have been educated by these half-educated reviewers that I read online that something has to be unpredictable and original to be worth my time. So I was unable to invest in the story. The first is a legitimate criticism of your writing. The second should be ignored. It's not always going to be clear which is which. But if you get the criticism that your writing is predictable, what you want to do is take another look. Next time you write a book, put extra work into generating reader investment, to weaving the spell of enchantment. And the people who call your books predictable will shift over time as you get better from being in that first category to being in that second, and that second can be safely ignored. Definitely. Thank you very much for joining us today, and we actually will see, see you. you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.